have changed. One of the most recent additions was a Bos- is Bosk monitors or Savannah monitors. We've added them. We got approached by a renowned field herpetologist called Daniel Bennett. He wrote uh, the Chimera edition uh, monitor lizards book. He came in and he said, I'm really struggling because the ecology of the monitor is far more complex than we originally thought. Charles, we, we're really struggling. Like the, the, the ecology is, is, is really rough for them over there. They go through the cestivation process. They drop down to like seven or eight percent body fat. They look like bags of bones. When they're when they're at this skinny phase, the males become arboreal and climbing up in trees, which is all behaviours that make no sense to people who have these bloated, obese, nasty masses that they all keep in their vivarium. Explaining why we have an animal in a box is an issue, you know. Yes. So then, when you have a 15-foot snake in a six-foot vivarium, you are not presenting the good side of this hobby. You're presenting everything that is wrong with the hobby. People don't realise that just simple names, Leucomelas, black and white. So that the reason for that is so Dendrobates leucomelas, the the bumblebee dart frog, was preserved, and it was a preserved specimen that was named. And because the preservation process had bleached it, it had turned it Welcome white. to episode number 87 of the Animals at Home podcast. My name is Dylan Perrin. Thank you so much for tuning in today. If you're looking for more information on the podcast, make sure you head to animalsathomenetwork.com. If you are interested in supporting the podcast on Patreon, head to patreon.com slash animalsathome. There you'll have access to early episodes as well as the option to submit questions to upcoming guests. We do have a fantastic little community building up over there. I think we're at about 36 members and I do thank every single one of you for signing up for the Patreon account. It really does help me a lot, help me pay for the show, help support the production of the show, which goes a really, really long way. So thank you so much for that. Thank you to our sponsor, CustomReptileHabitats.com. If you're looking for a new enclosure, some of the best enclosures on the market, make sure you head to CustomReptileHabitats.com. There is an affiliate link in the YouTube description as well as at the show notes at AnimalsAtHomeNetwork.com. If you click on that affiliate link and do make a purchase, a small commission does come back to me at no extra cost to you. So if you are in the market for a new enclosure and want to simultaneously support the show, that is one way you can do that. All right, let's jump into today's episode. So today I'm speaking with Charles Thompson, aka Chaz of Snakes and Adders. I'm sure you've seen the Snakes and Adders YouTube channel. If you haven't, you must go check it out because Chaz has some incredible content on there. Everything from learning how to pronounce Latin names to snake anatomy to breaking down intermediate, beginner, and advanced snake species with just very, very in-depth care guides. I don't even call them care guides, just sort of ecology of species. And he goes into more detail than I see almost anyone do on YouTube. Chaz is is a wealth of information. He's been doing this for a long time. Snakes and Adders, the reptile shop in the UK, has become or has a reputation of being one of the best shops out there. He has incredible animal suppliers. The staff that he has, including himself, really understand that it is about the animal first and the customer second. We're making sure that the animals are being sold to somebody who's actually going to care for them in a way that promotes good welfare. So in the episode, Chaz breaks down sort of in general, the ethics and the philosophy that allow him to run the store, especially his focus on young customers, meaning the kids coming in who are buying their first leopard gecko or their first corn snake or first reptile. He walks us through how he gets those kids, A, excited about caring for the animal, but also how he gives them the responsibility of caring for the animal. It's not about, you know, making sure mom and dad know how to buy crickets. He really does put all of the responsibility in the hands of the child, which I think he is really 
creating the next generation of mindful and conscientious reptile keepers. And I hope if there are any other shop owners out there who are listening to this or, or shop workers or employees that you take some of the advice that Chaz is laying out in this episode and implement it in your store if you're not already doing something similar, because I think it really is a home run. Chaz talks about the difference between running a reptile-related business and comparing it to someone who's just interacting with the reptile trade as a hobbyist level, how those two things interplay with each other and how where they disagree and where they can agree. We talk about the species that Chaz has on a do not sell list. So Chaz actually has a list of species that he refuses to carry and sell in the store. I'm sure you can imagine what a few of those are off the top of your head. So he tells us what species there are on that list and why they're there. And then we just talk about in general, advancing the hobby, moving forward, what are things going to look like in the future and you know what let's just let the conversation roll it was a fantastic conversation it was a pleasure chatting with Chaz I know you will all enjoy it here's my conversation with Chaz I will talk to you after Chaz welcome to the podcast thank you so much for doing this oh thank you thank you for having me really looking forward to chatting with you I think you know you're you have this presence online that you sort of have this very no bs attitude and I think people respect that and people really go to you for truthful and authentic advice and you know you're constantly posting on youtube and and so i think we're going to get into all that because i i I definitely want to talk about that more but before we do can you let us know how all of this started what got you into reptiles initially Uh, it was accidental i went around to a friend's house to a play date i suppose you'd call it back in the day i was 10 years old my mate duncan he'd got a western hognose and i thought whoa that's interesting and i had a proper look at it and I just couldn't believe that I had an actual live snake. I can remember it as if it was yesterday. It's mad. It's 30 years ago. And it's as if it just happened. And the way it felt, the rough scales, the oranges and blacks on its belly, I just, everything about it, I fell in love with it immediately. Um, and then promptly started begging my mum and dad for a snake of my own. <laughs> That's pretty much the way it worked. Were so. they keen on that or were they not, not huge fans? Uh, I think initially it was shock, but my mum suffers with anaphylaxis, so she can't go near rodents. She used to have to carry an EpiPen. So whether it was uh, hamsters, guinea pigs, rabbits, she reacted to it all. So for pets, we were pretty limited. My mum and dad worked full time, so a dog or cat wasn't appropriate. So actually, finding reptiles was a godsend because it's very difficult to be allergic to them unless you're allergic to your own fingernails and hair. (laughs) So, <laughs> yes, which would be a disaster. Yeah. <laughs> as far as so, then what did you start keeping initially when you were when you were a kid? My my first snake was a broad banded water snake, so one of the Nerodias, and then uh, the second snake I kept was a grey rat snake. She was the love of my life. She was called McCartney. I thought she was fabulous. Uh, and then I had a diamondback water snake, Nerodia rhombifer, and then the final one was a spotted python. So, uh, Anteresia maculosa. So, mm. Yeah. So, they were the four, the initial ones. And so, what do you think, why the passion for reptiles? What do you, th- what do you think that comes from or what it, about them is so attractive? Oh, that's a difficult one. I, I just, some, you know, like, like a, a spark goes off. And I saw, the first time I saw that Western Hognose, something changed and i was just like this is amazing i couldn't believe it how intricate they were how ornate they were the way they behaved the way that they interacted with their immediate environment and i was at ease around them i wasn't scared of them um and i just i don't know they're just fabulous fabulous things really nice like i i can't describe it apart from just love at first sight that's probably 
that's probably the best way to put it. So then, as you start keeping, you you, know, you have those four animals like you talked about. Was yeah. did you have a, a career path in mind? Did you want to pursue working with animals in some way? Obviously, you do now. Was that part of the package, or or how did that get folded in? Um, oh well, so now I, I went to university. I was doing a product design degree, mm. um, and I was I was pretty much two thirds of the way through that, and then I got offered the opportunity to buy a shop that I worked at weekends. My mum and dad knew it was futile to try and talk me out of it um, because they kind of knew that that was what I was destined to do. Uh, and, you know, wonderfully, because for them, they, they, they said, yes, OK, we'll support you. We'll offer you financial help and we'll help you buy this shop. <laughs> I bought Snakes and Adders in 2003. So. OK, Interesting. So before you did that, because when we, when I listen to you speak, especially, you know, when you have these amazing informative videos on YouTube, clearly you have, you know, sort of like Francis in a way we we're talking about Francis before Kaskiri, mm. you're like an encyclopedia in, in the head. You just, you know, you know all the Latin names and, you know, everything to know about these animals. Were you already doing that before owning, working at the shop? Like, was that part of just I used passion? to get my mom, I used to get my mom to test me on the Latin names. <laughs> just for fun? <laughs> Yeah, I'm such a nerd. <laughs> Honestly, but like, yeah, I, I, I had a little Collins Gem Snakes Guide book, and I would force my mum to sit in the chair, and she'd go, I don't know, uh, Burmese Python, and I'd be like, uh, Python Malaris Bivitatis, as it was at the time, anyway. Now it's Python Bivitatis Bivitatis. Before people have a go at me for getting the wrong Latin name, you know, <laughs> yeah. they've been reclassified so many times. So we used to do that and go through them all. And yeah, I, I suppose at one point I'd have probably had about a thousand of them up there somewhere. I, I've forgotten them all now, but yeah. right, I used to be, I used to be a nerd, like you wouldn't believe. So. Well, I do believe it <laughs> because, <laughs> because when I when I hear you speak, I can hear that come out, and it's you know it's there. There are a lot of people who I think try in herp, herpetoculture try and pretend like they know a lot about it, and and mm. you know for me, I I try to stay away from that as much as possible. Like I'm just learning, asking questions. But uh, you know, as far someone like you, it's not like you're trying to prove anything. It's just when you speak. I can tell that there's a deep sense of knowledge there. There's a foundation. It's not like you just went to Google and tried to like rattle off an article or remember it and then go to your video and quickly, you know, t talk or, you know, t spout it off. It's, it's there. There's a foundation. I, I, I use online tools to help me research the videos. Of course. I'm not yeah. going to say that I don't, you know, um, you want to make sure that you're correct. The first, I mean, people are, are always wanting to pull you down. So you've got to make sure that you're on it. And you don't want any of you, you don't want to, you want no, no uh, valid video maker wants to give erroneous advice. So you've got to make sure the localities and things and distribution are right. But yeah, I mean, it, I've spent a, a pretty much a lifetime reading and learning about them. And then because of the exposure to the shop from, I mean, bearing, I, I had a collection of approaching probably 80 to 100 animals at my home prior to taking the shop and that that was that ran the gambit from oriental fire-bellied toads up to reticulated pythons and amethystine pythons so it, i had a, a really wide uh ranging taste um and then going into the shop at 20 years old having to learn on your feet work with a load of bunch a bunch of species you've not worked with before cocking up with a load of species that you've not worked with before because in truth that's where you learn you, you, you're not learning if everything goes right all the time what are you learning exactly. the cock-ups and the mistakes are where you actually 
learn your trade. And I've made enough cock-ups now to be comfortable telling people and advising people based on real world experience rather than theory written in a book. Mm -hmm. So I can, I can bring the book part, which was my nerd element in, and then my real world experience as well. So, so as far as snakes and adders go, you know, I see on the sign behind you established in 2000 and then you bought it in 2003. So it wasn't actually around for that long before it came up for sale for you to, to buy. So what's the story there? the dude run it into the ground pretty much okay so, yeah. like, you know he wasn't it, it wasn't a particularly scrupulous fella it wasn't being run uh particularly well and uh i had the opportunity to take it on and immediately found myself on the back foot i had people coming in with tortoises that have been given a two percent tube all this sort of stuff and you think oh shit like, you know, what have I taken on? Like, yeah. and, and, and so for the first year, it was putting out fires and, and trying to solve problems. And again, that's the learning curve that you put on. And at 23, which is what I was when I took the shop, it was a pretty steep learning curve. It was a shock to the system to be responsible for it all. Yeah, so <laughs> I didn't get it right a lot of the time to begin with. A lot yeah. of mistakes were made. I can imagine that first couple of years must have been horribly stressful. Like, did you even sleep during that time? <laughs> yeah. Well, I just made, I made a lot of mistakes. I spent money on what I shouldn't have spent it on. I had the mentality of a hobbyist. The yeah. first key, the first key to ruining a reptile business, which is what I am, and I'm not ashamed to admit it, is being a hobbyist. Mm-hmm. You, you can't do both. They, 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 they can work together same way that me and Francis can work together. We can talk. All we do is talk, as you can imagine, because Francis <laughs> is a talker. Yeah. All, we yeah. do, all we do is rabbit on all day. And there's loads for us to talk about. But his perspective and my perspective will always be different because I'm in a professional capacity dealing with the public. He's in the private sector, keeping at home and knows the way that he wants to keep. And I think that's probably one of the, the biggest disconnects with the UK hobby. I don't know what it's like in, in Canada, but you know, um, we, we have a, a body representing us that then represents wholesalers, shops, and hobbyists. Doesn't work. Just doesn't work. Just too many what, 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 stakeholders. Yeah, what, what, under what one the wholesalers roof. want to what the shops want to what the ho- hobbyist wants are just totally different planets, never mind areas, you know. Right. So as soon as you start saying things such as for Francis with uh and, and uh, Daryl at Advancing Herpetological Husbandry and the things that they want to see implemented, which are completely uh, rational, they are researched, everything else, they won't necessarily get implemented because it would stifle the trade. If you stifle the trade, then you affect profit margin. If you affect profit margin, then we can't do it. So they get stymied at every opportunity and it gets stopped. Um, and, th- and this is a, an ongoing issue, which I won't, I don't see getting resolved anytime soon. You know, It is a very interesting issue for sure. Like we do always want to see progression on all three of those, like the wholesale, the business and the hobby, of course. But yeah. I think like you're hitting the nail on the head and they, they are always going to have slightly different practices. So w- yeah. what are some of the main things that you see that are different from a hobbyist to a business, for example? We'll leave the wholesales out of it, but. Yeah, so. so- the, the conversation that I've had repeatedly with Francis when we've been having that robust debates has been that the, the hobby is, is like a, a, a container ship. We can only turn at a certain pace and move at a certain pace, whether that be because we're waiting for 
the filter down of the research that Francis Baines and Roman Murren and all these other people are doing actually starts to filter into the ground soil, which is people coming up and wanting to start researching. Until that starts to happen, the shop's going, you've got to have this. You can't use that. You must use this. Well, I've been online and I've seen so-and-so's care sheet. It says nothing, nothing about this. Yeah. Why do I why do I need UV for a leopard gecko or why do I need this that and the other and so you're fighting a losing battle immediately and there comes a point where yes there are ethics yes you're profit making but you're trying to walk the line but there's only so quick you can turn as a private hobbyist you can literally spin on your heels 180 degrees and go right I'm doing this completely differently now yeah P5s halogens this light leds multiple basking sites blah 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 and and i have unlimited wealth and unlimited resources and i can do x y and z whereas for a shop 95 percent of the time we're dealing with little billy and little mandy 10 years old who are wanting to buy their first reptile mum and dad aren't made of money nor do they understand the hobby that their kids are getting into mm-hmm. we're trying to instill a passion in the kids without one breaking the bank and two frying their brains Yes, there's only so much that we can do, and and therefore, I see change in the hobby and change for good, and it is work that Francis and Roman and Francis uh, Kaskiri and Daryl and the others are doing with the UVB for for Leos and and Arcadia and and uh, reptile systems, doing the the, the shade dwellers and that there there are other parallels to it where we can introduce those to those animals that have got highly transmissible. Uh, skin for UVB and it's low exposure. So like your your 7% shade dweller and that can go on our croc skinks, on our um, leopard geckos, fat tail geckos, all this sort of stuff. And that's now part of our official kit that goes with every animal. And so that is a change. It seems like nothing to some of the advancing elite, but the truth is it's actually a seismic shift in husbandry terms for the shops to be introducing UVB as standard for this stuff yes people will deride it as small potatoes but they're the individual not an industry that's got to sort of turn itself around and and there's a bunch of shops that are trying to work to improve standards you know there's there's wrigley's down south from here there's uh my mate jordan up at uh, what's it called peculiar pets so that there's a few guys and they're vocal and you know whether they are um admins on on facebook groups or whatever else they're trying to expose this this modern care but the amount of troglodytes and knuckle draggers that are still in this hobby that refuse to accept that you've got to move forward it's not 1984 anymore you don't keep it in a frigging box with a light bulb on it, it just doesn't work we've got to think of better ways to do stuff and the the people who organ who run the hobby or are in charge of the hobby they they want the status quo but if you get status quo you're not going anywhere you've got to move forward yeah so i'm trying to move the shop forward as best as i can within the parameters of being a profit making business so yeah. there's only so fast i can go you know exactly yeah and and i think i think that's exactly right and even with the new keepers coming in that's the same sort of point that i try to make is it's okay how however you start you know, you get your animal, you, you set them up very simply, as long as there's an expectation that the progression is going to be there. And as a yeah. hobbyist, you plan to improve. That's great. And I, I know you had made this analogy once uh, on one of your videos, and I think it's a great analogy with, with the belt system that oh, comes yeah. from, I, were you judo or what were you? 
Uh, Brazilian jiu-jitsu. Oh, jiu-jitsu. Okay. Yeah. So can, maybe you could run through that because I think it's just a perfect analogy of why you can't start with the advanced skills that actually would be detrimental. Okay. So, yeah. So my, my background for martial arts is I end, I got a brown belt in Brazilian jiu-jitsu with Gracie Baja, and uh, I used to do the coaching. And we had a belt system, white, blue, purple, brown, black. And the system precluded certain moves or techniques based on the risk to your partner, not necessarily to yourself, what you could do to your partner. So whether that would be wrist locks, whether that was ankle locks, whether it was what we call knee bars, which are all varying locks that increase the severity of potential injury. And we would introduce certain moves at certain belts. And I think that with the hobby, we have to stage the way that beginners ramp up their experience if you if you're going to jump straight in with bioactivity your photo periods thermal gradients multiple basking sites live plants that you need to manage and organize and grow this is going to fail we all know it's going to fail straight out the bat nobody is a reptile expert you're going to cock up you're going to get bad sheds you might get cuts you could get grazers your snake might end up with the snuffles. These are things that we've got to work through. Now, if you're trying to juggle and balance 15 plates at once, whereas if I say to you, well, okay, we're going to have a tank with a thermostat and a heat pad or a thermostat and a bulb or a thermostat and a halogen, and this is our, our single plate, I reckon within a minute you've got that spinning and you've got it down pat. And that, that, that guy's just staying up there now. I'm happy with that. But then we're going to go, okay, so now you're going to keep tropical animals. So that's humidity. So there's your second plate. Right now, and now bioactivity. So that's your third plate and your fourth plate and your fifth plate. And this is where you, it's a balancing act and people need to master a certain skill before they can move on to the next skill. And that's why we use hardy animals. That's why you would never keep, I don't know, cat snakes or, or, or mangrove snakes as a beginner species, not only for the venom, but because they're so bloody delicate. So mm. you need an animal that's tolerant of cock-ups the reason corn snakes are kept is they're incredibly tolerant of you getting it wrong. And that's what makes an animal a good pet. If it's hardy, we don't necessarily want to test the limits, but a realist has to know that somebody is going to cock something up somewhere. And we need the opportunity to be able to bring it back from this problem and restore equilibrium to this snake. At which point then that owner has now just learned far more than not doing that cock up in the first place. I know that seems maybe slightly callous or counterintuitive, but it's the mistakes that they learn from. And that's how we're going to do it. So we, we, we introduced the basics initially at the point of sale. Every animal must be sold with a thermostat. All lizards as policy and all amphibians as policy are now sold with a UVB system. We're not quite at the snakes yet, but what we're going to do is over the next 15 months, the whole shop's getting refitted. And when it gets done, every one of my vivs is going to have uv i can't demand that people have uv for snakes if i haven't got it in my own tanks yeah so i've got a but then this is a twenty thousand dollar expense so i need to think about doing it a bit at a time so i can't quite do that immediately but th those are the basics the basic fundamentals i'm giving you photo and thermo and we're going to control those and we're going to see how we go and then if you want to add something more complex, we can at a later date, but we're not doing it yet because you need to cut your teeth on this and work out what you're doing and whether you've got it right. Yeah. 
I think that it's just a perfect analogy. And, and that's why, you know, I coach swimming and many of the listeners will know that I coach competitive swimming. So I work with athletes who are learning the basic competitive skills, but then all the way up to sort of national team members. And mm-hmm. if there, I could not take the national level skills and bring them down to our minis, it would, mm-hmm. it would, it, it wouldn't, the jujitsu example is even better because of the injuries that could happen from trying to teach those skills. For me, it would just be, it would be stupid. It would be pointless. It would be like trying to teach a grade 12 math to a kindergarten. You just would get nowhere. But I, that's why I like the jujitsu example because yeah, they need to learn the skills and have success and make small mistakes mm-hmm. that aren't going to kill the animal. And then when they're ready, they can come back. And I'm sure you have a dialogue, open dialogue with the customers, right? They can come back yeah. and, and learn Absolutely. and advance. Well, what we've introduced, I mean, predominantly the adults come back to us anyway, but what we're keen to develop is this family feeling for the kids. Mm-hmm. So we've introduced a certificate system where they get a certificate of ownership. And basically there's a declaration at the top of the certificate. I promise to do the best I can by my reptile and advance my husbandry where I can to make my animal succeed. So this is, this is part of what they're agreeing to. Um, and it's, it's one of our, our main tenants now. Me, me and the two girls here at, at the Snakes and Adders, we absolutely love the idea of having these kids. They're the keeper. Mum and dad, shut up. I'm not interested. I'm talking to the kid. You're the bank, that's all. I want to know. <laughs> I want to know the, the kid's name. What are we going to call it? You know, um, have you done your research? Have you done your reading? And the questions you want to ask me. I give them the business card and I say, you need to ring me. You ask for Chaz. And I'll help you, you know, and, and I get them these little voices. Oh, it's not fed this week. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> but, but that's what I want. I want them to feel that it, I'm approachable. I might look like a bit like a grizzly bear, but I'm approachable. You can come. I'm, you know, it's an just a friendly arm around their shoulder trying to help them in the hobby. And I think that sometimes that's missing. We take the kids for granted. They're far more capable than we realize. And if you give them the skill set, then they, they're going to be the future. So that I'm trying to give them the best start that you can. And I didn't necessarily get that start. I had a decent start in the hobby, but a lot of it was self-motivated learning rather than anything else. Whereas, you know, I, I'd like to think that the kids coming in here, hopefully are, are going to be zookeepers of the future or whatever else, you know? Well, and that was a conversation I was having with someone the other day. And I think this is what the internet has maybe ruined in some ways is that idea of mentorship where you're getting that connection with another keeper face to face and you're learning skills together. And I think that's exactly what you're describing here with the young kids. With the internet, yes, we have Facebook groups and that's all good. You can kind of communicate through texting, but it's not the same as being able to sit down with somebody and talk animals in person. And and even now with COVID, it's even worse. Mm-hmm. Well, no, I agree completely. And, and um, we, we will be fostering this kid thing and moving forward long term i think i would like to try and organize a kids club locally but i'm I'm not at a stage where i can organize that yet but that's somewhere i would like to be where we could have some sort of social club but then there was an educational element to it as well and we could develop them that way that's something that i would like to do long term i think yeah just just to try and help them and then being a mentor is something i take seriously i you know all of us shop owners have got a responsibility to the kids that we sell to, to do the very best by them. You know, if you're just seeing them as pounds and pence and or dollars and cents, whatever, you know, that, that, that then it's never going to succeed. You've got to invest in the kids. The passion's there. They're in each week. They're telling you about how their animal's doing. We give them a record sheet, which uh, we make them write down the shed skins and dates, feeds and dates. We want them to weigh it once a month. They can record when they've cleaned it out. At the bottom, it says, if you fill this sheet, we'll give you another one free. Just come in. So it's all about record keeping, trying to get them to be good record keepers, being 
good pet keepers and be responsible. We give them homework to do. I mean, this all sounds weird, but they do it. You know, oh, yeah. like so. So you think that that oh, well, I'm not doing that. That's rubbish. That's stupid. Why would I do that? Why, well, in actual fact, one, the parents really seem to like the fact that then you're making their children take on a responsibility and not shirk it. The homework is where's your animal from? What temperature does it like to be? Does it like being moist? Does it like being dry? Does it need any special vitamins? All these sorts of questions. And just from doing their little Google research and everything else, they can find out what they need to know and, um, you know, develop their knowledge. And then I say to them, anything that you can't answer, ring me and ask me and I'll tell you the answers. Yeah. Or bring, bring the sheet in and we can talk about it. So they come in and we have our little conversations and everything else. So I get bought bags of sweets and all sorts of stuff. <laughs> oh, see, that's the good, that's the good news. Yeah, yeah, it. that's and, the good stuff. Bags of lollipops and everything. Well, and you're so right. When you give a kid a chunk of responsibility, most people think, oh, their kids are not going to want to do it or they don't know. You know what? You give a kid some responsibility, they love that. They are eager about it because it's something that they can control and, and they it's their thing. And the mm. better they do at it, the more excited you're going to be, your parents are going to be. And it. I think you're exactly right. This idea that we have to, you know, protect kids or only talk to the parents, make sure the parents know what the, what it is, is just mm. totally wrong. An eight-year-old kid can figure out how to care for a leopard gecko, but yeah. they won't if you just sell them it and, you know, hope the parents buy the crickets. Yeah, or if the kid's only concept of keeping a leopard gecko is, I'm going to get it out three times a week to play with it, right. and then that's my responsibility ended, then you've taught them nothing. Exactly. Yeah, like they're, they're, how are they a keeper? They're not a keeper. They've taken on no responsibility. They don't, you know, I said to him, who's responsible for wheeze and poos? Who's cleaning out the wheeze and poos? You know, yeah. and, and it's like me, I am. You know, yeah, I said, you've job. got to clean out the wheeze and poos. You can't have a gecko without cleaning out the wheeze and poos. Yeah. yeah I mean, I felt like job. such an idiot. You've had all these illustrious guys on and here, <laughs> here I am talking about wheeze and poos. <laughs> <laughs> But I mean, but it's your, it's the foundation of the hobby. Like you said, these yeah. are the people that are coming up and replacing. And the cool thing is, is those will be lifetime customers of yours as well. So there is a business side that you can fold into that too, like from just the numbers point of view. You, you'd be a fool not to recognize that investing in the kids is going to be financially lucrative in the long term. Yeah. You're investing exactly. in the future. You're safeguarding the future by investing in the kids. Yeah, absolutely right. So as far as so when you took over the shop obviously this is where you are now you have all these i love this foundation you're focusing on the kids focusing on you know certificates yeah. of ownership and whatnot you, you took over the shop in 2003 you said there was a few years of learning what other things you know what what sort of things did you dump from the old owner that you've changed immediately and you know what gave your shop success i mean the shop's been around for 20, two decades now which mm. i think is pretty amazing that's probably way longer than most i would imagine so I, th I think I think the the key was establishing good contacts for animals, mm. and and one of my key contacts over the years is Darren Biggs at Crystal Palace Reptiles. I've worked with Darren for pretty much twenty years. Uh, he's a wonderful guy, incredibly patient. Um, I mean, I, my shop's been through some rough times, some bad patches. You know, I'm not afraid to admit it because I'm not in those patches anymore. <laughs> we're in a good place. But, you know, in retrospect, we, we were we were on our ass at many an, an occasion. And uh, Darren would always be patient and understanding. And Shit, I owe you thousands, mate. I owe you thousands. Like, don't worry about it. You know, don't worry. And, you know, I'll never forget. I will never that I, loyal for life. And I'm never going to forget that because that's what helped me. And the fact that I could go down and pick up animals that I couldn't afford, 
help to then establish the shop mm-hmm. on a on on, on a, a national level for having that stock in there which because you're only as good as your stock list is the honest answer so from a shop's perspective yeah if you only do sort of the basics you're only ever going to get the basic keepers if you do the, the oddball and left field stuff i'm big in part of why me and me and francis jam is we, we, we're banging to colubrids so weird colubrids the weirder the better so i started stocking all the weird asiatic rat snakes or all, all, all the european rat snakes and that's you know that was my thing oddballs and darren was more interested in the boas and pythons but had the ability to bring in the oddballs as well so i'd always be like yes please do you know <laughs> every time every time any arrived they're coming straight up north and he knew it as well shall i even bother unpacking these you know? <laughs> just send them up <laughs> yeah so uh yeah no so yeah i think i think establishing a network of good contacts good breeders people you trust but more more than anything running the shop with integrity and being honest yeah. uh i think that, that that there's a lot of arseholes in this hobby and that doesn't that doesn't stop at shops there are arsehole shop owners as well who will take their customers around the corner take them for every penny that they've got half the stuff they don't need or half the stuff that they did need they've not been given you know and it's about about profit margin and it's about the sale and as soon as there's an issue they don't want to know so at snakes and adders we try and clean up our own mess if there's a problem with an animal that we've sold we rectify it we solve it for example all snakes when we sell them we give them three meals free we call them the baseball strikes if they strike out we'll refund exchange or get it feed in for them that way they know that they've got a safety net unless it's a breeding size royal at which point we're like well sorry ball python <laughs> <laughs> what's a royal <laughs> oh, no, yeah um, <laughs> Same ball python's so wrong. So yeah, <laughs> royal python. Like we'll we'll make exceptions if it's a species that's known for sort of east evasion or fasting. Right. But but for the, for the most part, there's a safety net cast to try and catch people and make sure that they're not going to panic. And I mean, even after that three week period, if there's issues, we rectify it. We have animals that come back that are fasting. It's like yeah, yeah, we'll get it going again for you, because you've you've got to look after your customers, look after your crowd. It's not just profit. It's I try and think of them as family. They're all mates. The people that come in. There obviously has to be a certain amount of distance because you, when you get too pally with customers, sometimes they can take the piss because they're there all the time. Or do you know what I mean? So, yes, yeah. Um, but like you know, certainly I want them to be welcome and feel that they can approach me if they have an issue, and I will do everything within my power that's reasonable to to solve it for them. Yeah. Well, I think yeah. I mean, that's why it's been around for twenty one years. They're going on twenty one mm-hmm. years, so it, it makes sense. And and one of the things we were talking about before we started recording was the breeders and the suppliers. And you were saying you know, how this is going to change now that you guys are a little more insular in the UK. Mm-hmm. So uh, what are what are ways? So I'll let you answer that as well. And then also, you know, when you're looking for new breeders, or if someone comes to you and says, "Hey, I'm breeding this species. Would you like to buy them?" What are you? What's your checklist there to make sure you're buying from somebody who you trust? So that's generally all already taking place the minute that we heard about brexit we immediately set out to establish connections within the uk recognized the fact that there was going to be issues at borders so we have got probably a network of around 12 or 15 breeders across the uk who work with various species who don't necessarily have any interest in working with the public and all of the headaches that that brings so they would prefer to be able to sell to me 
in one go and just not have the problem yeah and that's 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 where where we go and that and i've got like one of one of the probably the the best partnerships i've had is with a guy called dave cropper who's in um southport on uh, the west coast and he produces all sorts of wonderful snakes dwarf burmese argentine boas long tail boas russian rat snakes well this is manna from heaven for me you know but he just he he doesn't um, there has been less shows he generally does sell at the shows but he's he's a realist and knows like you know okay like i i, I want to work with a trustworthy shop i sold him some of his breeding stock for his blood pythons and his burmese years ago the dwarf burmese so he's come back to me and we've developed a really good working relationship and it's been fruitful for the both of us because obviously with my profile well, the shop's profile we can sell more than than he could so he'd still yeah. be sat on three quarts of it whereas we can move it far more effectively and it goes through the filters of our policies which is thermostatic control and everything else so yeah there's, there's a bunch bunch more um and and then you know I've, i'm touched because people do come to me and they do offer me stuff or they reach out because they want their stuff to go through a reputable shop and it's always nice to hear that um they're just as concerned the opposite way around like you were saying how do you know about the quality control it's like well they they're exactly the same when it comes to selling or at least the decent breeders are because shops have got a name that's not particularly great most places but the uk definitely because there's some real jokers out there and um the problem that you get is that they get jaded by seeing stuff being sold with erroneous information and all the rest of it. So I suppose having the YouTube channel, they're my testimonials to this is what I think of these animals. And there's 200 plus videos now. So it's like, yeah, if you want to know how I do things or what I think about things, I pretty much spoke my mind unfiltered on the YouTube channel for a few years. Yeah. Yeah. There's hours up there. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, well, I guess, yeah, I, I never really thought about that as a breeder, how much easier it would be to just sell the offspring to a shop like yours because you know, like you said, all those filters are in place. You know that you're going to be the face selling the animal and be there to ask a- answer questions for customers and new keepers. And I mean, you have to be patient to answer the same question every day. And I'm guessing you guys have probably a list of 40 questions that you answer every single day. And you just have to be as excited to answer it every single day. And I can imagine some breeders are like, I just don't want to do with that, deal with mm-hmm. that anymore. But there, there, there is the messing around element as well. Sometimes not all sales go through. But we here, we're less about the sale and more about the animal or the kid. So like we 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 turn away a good a good portion of people we we so it's it's um with the questions going back to what you said because i'm going off on a tangent with with the question regarding repeating yourself when you're working with kids actually the joy in their face and the excitement is enough so yeah that what i had at 10 years old with the western hognose is what i see every day when the kids walk through the door so everything i take for granted that has become muscle memory and is here every day i have to view through the starry eyes of a child do you know what i mean yeah. oh yeah so so and and and, and it's easy to do because i'm a big kid so it's not really a <laughs> yeah. challenge but yeah, yeah. you know the part part of it is putting yourself down on their level how amazing this this is that's a real reptile looking back at me through this glass i can't believe it you know like and, and that's how excited they are and you know yeah you have to sort of get hold of yeah come on let's let's hold it let's make sure it's safe let's keep them calm and and, and this is 
all part and parcel of it. That's the fun bit. The less fun bit is sometimes the people that think that they know more than they do. Right. And you then have to get my slightly more assertive head on. Shut up. Let me tell you how to keep this right. <laughs> yeah. I can see that side of you. <laughs> yeah. that, that, that's sort of the side that I think... Um, you know, not that it's mean or anything, but when we're watching on the YouTube channel, like I said, it's a very no BS sort of attitude, and that's what I think many of us think. I think we'd probably all be surprised to see you with the, the with the young kids. I don't think we'd be too surprised to see you sort of grab the scruff of somebody's <laughs> uh, shirt and throw them out the shop for asking. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you know. So anyway, continue. Yeah, well, no, I, I'm I I'm not a, a overly aggressive person, but I am a forthright person. So yeah. up north, we call it straight John Bull. You say exactly what you think. There's no gray area. If I'm thinking it, I'm saying it. And that's yeah. pretty much the way it works. <laughs> um, and for the most part, my customers are northern, so they're used to it as well. So the only people that get a shock are the southerners when they come up. And they're like, whoa. <laughs> Those weak southerners. <laughs> oh, no, <holy. laughs> That was a bit rough. You know, yeah. but, you know like, um, it, I think we're, we're dealing with live sentient beings. So at yeah. which point, I'm not going to fuck about. Exactly. You're going to do, do this properly or not at all. Yeah. And you're going to take it seriously or not at all. And if I don't like what you're saying to me, you're not having it. And if that angers you, tough, piss off. Do you know what I mean? That's pretty much my take on it. And I, I suppose that's what the shop, every bad review we've got, of which we've got some, I'm proud of the ones I've got, because every bad view, review we've got, either on Facebook or Google, is based on me saying, on your bike, son, you're not having it. So some, <laughs> yeah. some, sto some story has been concocted about how rude and obnoxious I was. No, 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 no. You wanted to keep a Bosch monitor in a bedroom on a heat pad. You're a twat. Oh. Yeah. You know what I mean? <laughs> so, yeah, that, that, exactly. That, so, but, you know, it, you don't even want to get into the dialogue. Let them have their minute of rant and then they're gone. You yeah. know, all these That's not going to work. Yeah, you're not going to rile me up that way. You can have your little digs. I don't care. Too big and I think them. many people expect to, when they walk into a shop to just be able to buy what they want. And Absolutely. it's sort of a, a real, like, mind opener when they're just like, oh, you're not letting me purchase something here? Mm-hmm. Absolutely. But they don't realize that this is a luxury and I'm the gatekeeper and I decide whether you get to have it or not. Yeah. So don't think, don't come in here with your entitled attitude of I'm buying it and you can't stop me. You ain't buying shit unless I tell you you're buying it. And that's, that's pretty much the way it works. <laughs> yeah, and exactly. literally, literally and, and, and that is the way that this business is run and the way that the business has always been run. We have clearly defined difficulty levels marked on the VIVs beginner intermediate advanced which is echoed on the youtube channel introducing intermediate and advanced so that we're grading arbitrarily these animals into sectors so if you've never kept something before and your opening gambit is it's my first snake well then no intermediate snake is appropriate for it yeah that's simple just, before we even go any further that's it it's done you know so that we, we can cut the the wheat from the chaff immediately these are the species you can choose from everything else off the table yeah. yeah, but I, re I really want a Burmese. No, you don't. Yeah. <laughs> you know, not you from don't. here, you're not. <laughs> exactly. So, but well, the I, amount of shops that still do it, still sell anything to anyone is alarming. And that is a problem, a major problem, you know. Well, I, I think this is a good chance to talk about the the other policy that I find very interesting with your shop is the the animals you don't sell. There's a, mm. there's a pretty good list of animals that you refuse to carry and sell. So yeah. maybe you could just kind of run through that. Retics. Burmese, Indian rocks, um, African rocks, dwarf African rocks, 
amethystine pythons, green anacondas, green iguanas, bosk monitors, and Nile monitors off the top of my head. Yeah. Yeah. And those oh, and are turtles, turtles as well. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. That's right, sliders and whatnot. Yeah, yeah. So, can you tell me the? I mean, I you don't really have to convince me why those are on your do not sell list, but there's many people who would say why? Why is that? Yeah, absolutely. They they regularly do say why is that, and they yeah. regularly question me. Not that I care because it's my shop and I'll do what I want. <laughs> yeah. The, the point being that retics are farm bred. You only have to look at some of the biggest YouTube channels to see that retics are farm bred. It's ridiculous, retarded. Yeah. Animals that reach 20 feet in length immediately cannot be kept by certain people, whether that be space, whether that be the financial constraints of organizing this giant viv. It doesn't matter how many celebrities you parade holding these retics, whatever else you do, you're a moron and you're producing far more snakes than you bloody should. And there is no place for them to go. There's a finite amount of people that can rehome a giant snake. So if you're saying, well, ball pythons are mass-produced, they are mass-produced, they're farm-bred, they are farm-bred, and they're kept in horrendous conditions in rugs and all the rest of it. Yes, absolutely. But do you know what? You could give me 100 ball pythons, and I reckon within a year I could rehome every one of them because their requirements are within the realm of 90% of all prospective keepers. Yeah. So... Then to get a 12 or 14 foot retic that some knobhead bought at a show because he thought it was a good idea or he had a belly full of beer at the bar and went and bought this snake. And now he's been scared of it for the last nine months because it struck it in once because he waved the rat wrongly in front of its face. And it's been sat for nine months, becoming more and more feral and not used to being worked with. And then we're, we're presented with a four meter long angry snake that we can do nothing with who do we give it to who wants yeah. it? and you you can't it it is apples and oranges the comparison between balls and retics is just a it's a farce i you, people who, who make the argument are talking out of their ass you've yeah. got snakes that are huge powerful specialist predators and if we're not looking after them, interacting with them and keeping them correctly, they can become very bad news very quickly. So we decided that given the prevalence of retic breeding within the UK, the fact that said moron in America was sending over loads of retics to another said moron in England to then get pushed around the UK with multiple morons breeding more mainland retics, you just think, I don't want any part of that. Yeah, I've kept retics. I've kept over 100 retics over the years. But part of being an adult is the ability to change one's mind and not yes. necessarily always be on the same track. So I have changed over the years. I have changed. One of the most recent additions was a Bos is Bosque Monitors or Savannah Monitors. We've added them. We got approached by a renowned field herpetologist called Daniel Bennett. He wrote uh, the Chimera edition uh, Monitor Lizards book. He lives in Glossop, or he lived in Glossop. He's, uh, he's died now, unfortunately. Um, but before he passed away, he came into Seals, and he'd come into Seals in Leeds, and we'd had a good meeting then. And he came in and he said, I'm really struggling because the ecology of the monitor is far more complex than we originally thought. 
Daniel is, was a field herpetologist of 25 years standing who lived with the tribes people in Ghana and went out collecting the Savannah monarchs. Nobody on this planet, maybe bar one other guy in America whose name I can't even bloody remember, that worked with Daniel, knows more than Daniel. So this guy is the Yoda of Savannah monarchs. So not only that, I'm already falling over myself because he is like some demigod of reptile keeping anyway and was on the ICUN uh, panel for deciding what severity of protection monitor lizards got that's his credentials wow but, you know he's he's a serious dude comes in says um charles we're, we're really struggling like the, the the ecology is 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 really rough for them over there they go through this estivation process they're dropped down to like seven or eight percent body fat they look like bags of bones when they're when they're at this skinny phase the males become arboreal and climbing up in trees which is all behaviors that make no sense to people who have these bloated obese nasty masses that they all keep in their vivariums yeah so you're you're listening to this and i'm saying well, well what can we do about it and he says well the problem is we can get them through their first season but we can never get multiple seasons of eggs out of the bosques they seem to die of renal failure and kidney problems and all the rest of it and this estivation process is thought to be the like you know the cure and i said to him, well i'm not being funny daniel but you know if somebody lets their monitor drop to eight percent body fat and you can visibly see the ribs they're going to get called out for being cruel yeah. so there's a juxtaposition between what happens in the wild and what happens in captivity but he approached the head of our uk hobby to discuss the problems with the ecology of Bosque monitors and was derided as an anti. Oh, you're as bad as them. That's the bullshit that you're dealing with. Do you know what yeah. I mean? Like yeah, this, yeah, guy, yeah. this guy is not just another keeper. He's not, he's not just, not just anyone. 25 years field experience with Varanus exanthematicus. The guy knows the species inside now. And he's coming to you saying, we have made discoveries that have proven my previous text to be totally wrong. He was completely humble non-arrogant about it because he, he, he's written two or three books he wrote a book with a guy called id and idriel das which was just on savannah monitors and some of the care in there he says is totally wrong we got it totally totally wrong Chaz. and and it's far more complex than we thought and i said well I, what, what are we going to do about it he says well i don't know i approached the head of the hobby and i basically felt like i was a member of peter yeah he's an icun red list bloody doctor deciding how se severe the, the the protection is for certain species of varanus it's crazy and that's because all the wholesalers are mass importing varanus exanthematicus at this very moment because it's it's the season for ghana to ship out and there's now going to be a load of boss monitors running through every shop in the uk which in four years are going to be fat bloated messes because every dickhead's decided to feed them mice rather than insects and they'll yeah. all be there and that yeah. and that, that's and that's this is this is the horror point of the hobby we have a good point of the hobby where we've got the kids and the positivity and ahh but to pretend that the other side it doesn't exist is a fallacy the, the antis have got a point a lot of the time if you yes, stop and actually listen to, yeah. to the arguments actually shit, that's close to the bone because that happens a lot do you know what mm. i mean and oh and, yeah and yeah you you've got a i think any person you know, to be a be a, a proper, well, in my case, a man, I have to admit my mistakes and my cock-ups. I have to hold my hand up and say, yeah, I got that wrong. And um, we sold bosks, we sold retics, we sold anacondas. We, we got it wrong. Don't do it anymore. 
I can't in good conscience continue. I can't apologize or take back what I've already done, but I can try and change for the future. That's all we can do. That's personal development. That's all the hobby needs to do, grow a conscience and develop. Yeah, you can't attach yourself personally to those ideas. Like you say, you you look at the information with the Savannah Monitor and you go, wow, there is no way any person can care for this properly. We just have to stop selling it. And that's the yeah. only solution you're left with. But if you're attached to the idea of selling people boss monitors or yeah. you know working with the importers, you're never going to let that idea go. But it doesn't give us any credibility next to the animal rights groups if we if we are ideologues and we are just stationing our, our flags on things that we've been doing for 40 years. So, you know, let's just continue doing that. We need to be dynamic. Absolutely. I mean, one of the things that came up was we had this program in the UK, which was Tiger Kings UK. Yeah, I was going to bring that up as well. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, they, it was bad, man. It was bad. Um, and uh, it the, the guy that they had on was not a great representative of the hobby and it Can really you just give like a, fifth, a 20 second uh, summary of what what they were showing on that because it was a tiger king it was mostly about you know cats and whatnot but there was a section about reptiles and just yeah so, you know, for the so in the in the in the uk the tiger king's uk a presenter called ross kemp who's an actor and he goes around visiting the most dangerous gangs in the world or most dangerous prisons he's one of these action junkies um but he was in eastenders of all things as well um so he interviews uh, some guy gary i think he was from from the midlands no teeth <laughs> just <laughs> yeah literally what you'd expect if you thought you know just a council estate every bedroom rammed to the rafters with retics big lizards all this stuff rub shit piled on more shit and you're just thinking for fuck's sake you know this is this is our representative this is national tv this is ross kemp who's an award-winning journalist for his gangs and whatever else. And this is the best we can do. Yeah. So you, you've got, you've got this guy who's then putting his monitor on a lead and taking it for a walk in a park. They're both wearing puffer jackets. It's not warm <laughs> enough. You know, yeah. Yeah. It, it's just the amount that is wrong with what's going on in this program, you can't even list in time. I sat with my head like this and my as if i was having period like uh, pregnancy pains my wife was rubbing my back going are you all right Ross? are you all yeah. right and i'm going no i'm not fucking all right look what he's saying oh my god you know and, yeah. and you could feel the majority of other british keepers who knew what they were doing just going no no and 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 their representative was dr so-and-so from peter and we got i don't know bernard off of housing estate in Birmingham, Jesus Christ. Yeah. So the, the, the odds are already stacked against the hobby. And we keep animals in boxes. Tart it up any way you want. We keep animals in boxes. They're not in the wild. And that's a tough sell for Joe Bloggs, who doesn't keep reptiles, who doesn't understand what we do or why we do it. Explaining why we have an animal in a box is an yeah. issue. You know, yes. so then when you have a 15 foot snake in a six foot vivarium, you are not presenting the good side of this hobby. You're presenting everything that is wrong with the hobby. And what you're doing is giving ammunition to people that didn't need any more ammunition to begin with. We have a responsibility to do things properly. And yet this is still the way that the general public perceive us. That production team sat down and pick this kid off an estate for a reason 
He yeah. was the optic that they wanted. To have somebody who is eloquent and cerebral, like Francis, go on and, why are you asking me that question? Are you trying to catch me out? Mm-hmm. You just catch them straight away. You yeah. Listen, mate, you're not quick enough, so you need to sharpen up. Like, I'm not falling into this trap. So, whereas, obviously, this other kid was just happy as proud as Punch to be on TV. Yeah. And, you know, like, and yeah. just all excited and just basically spilled his guts, spouted a load of wrong information. Um, <clears throat> one of the quotes was, monitor lizards have been known to kill their owners. Yeah, I remember and, that. Yeah, and he's, he's got, like, he's got a white throat on it that's, like, four and a half foot long. It's like, really? <laughs> yeah. On, I, yeah. it, it boiled my piss i cannot even begin to tell you how angry that program made me and it, it's it's a real shame because the hobby is so much more than that and it wasn't my hobby that doesn't represent my hobby not as far as i'm concerned well no and i and i completely agree and and that is the image that people think of the mainstreamers people who are me i shouldn't call them mainstreamers people who don't keep reptiles yeah that is what they think. And mm-hmm. then to put that on TV, they're only it only reinforces like, yeah, you are the weird guy that has 45 snakes in a small room. And, mm-hmm. you know, I, I always say like we, we want to be stewards of the hobby and stewards of herpetoculture so we can show the rest of the non-reptile keeping people why we do it and why it's important and what values we offer the society. Yeah. Even if you don't want to be a reptile keeper, mm-hmm. you don't want to let random people outside your bubble figure out or come to their own conclusion why you keep 40 snakes in your house because mm-hmm. they're going to come to the conclusion that you're a weirdo, a creepy guy who has no teeth, who feeds yeah. rats to snakes all night. Yeah. And we don't want that image. Mm. Absolutely. We don't want that image. And you try as you might to remove that image. There's a hangover from the eighties and nineties, which still sees the hobby that way. And until yeah. we can get cerebral people in a position that can talk eloquently to people that are willing to listen about what it is our hobby does, we're not going to get anyone. The truth is, though, that won't sell newsprint. It is not newsworthy. It is not engaging. It is not interesting. That's why you need a Joe Exotic. Mm-hmm. You can't You can't have somebody who's just normal talking about animals they love and why you're passionate about improving their husbandry because nobody in the general public gives a shit because they need exactly. action and they need pizzazz and car chases and helicopters and rockets and all this shit, you know, and they need to be entertained. So maybe even trying to convince the general public is a waste of time. Why, you know, like concentrate on what we're doing for ourselves. Look at the things that people highlight as being issues of our hobby and improve ourselves. The the more that sort of uh, joint community education rises, we close the loopholes of dickheads doing stuff like this kid on the estate. And yeah. it becomes it becomes the norm to have your UVB on all your animals. It becomes the norm to have thermostats on all your animals. That We're doing things a certain way and to a certain set of standards. In the UK, they introduced the animal activities license for shops. So this prescribes a certain size of vivarium and a certain size of animal that can be kept within it. But they can leave the shop and put it in a shoebox. Right. Doesn't so make sense. What, yeah. What, yeah. So we're we're the guys with the transient stock. We're the guys that are only having things potentially for a short while, and we're the guys that have got to provide homes bigger potentially than they're going to get. Because they could, if they're coming to us for the animal, they could tell me they've got an eight foot viv. 
take a photo of an eight foot viv at some point you've got to trust them and exactly but they're not forced to be telling me the truth and, and this is our issue so until standards are actually enforced for the hobby it's all a bit farcical yeah do you, do you think we are moving fast enough as far as improving like progressing improving the image or, i'm impressed i'm impressed with the work that advancing herpetological husbandry and other groups have undertaken mm. i'm impressed with the rate that information is disseminated and sent around other groups once it's been published to reptile lighting or ahh <clears throat> there is always going to be the old schoolers who do not want to accept it who yeah. will shoot it down um and thankfully they're a dying breed and we can soon be shut of them they run most of the uk hobby the sooner they're gone the better i the dinosaurs they need to go I'm, yeah. i have no time for them whatsoever and i don't hide my disdain for them and i'm very publicly a, a, a detractor from them. i've got no time for them and it holds us back we've got people like um harvey tweaks and the lads down at uh, celtic reptile and they're yeah. doing these outdoor enclosures wanting to do the reintroductions they had a positive piece of news put into a newspaper. Fabulous. Should have been fanfare everywhere. Wonderful. What a great news story. Positive about reintroductions, showing young uh, reptile keepers that are positive and moving forward and full of energy and vibrancy about their challenges and what they want to do. Everything that we want our public image to be shared onto a group and all the old schoolers shot them down about reintroductions. And you think you've pricks do you know what i mean like yeah exactly got a 19 and 20 year old kid or however like 17 18 year old kids who are trying their best they've got into the national press it's been positive and you're giving them shit yeah what the f about this hobby it unfortunately does come with a lot of frustrations a lot of frustrations yes, where the people that, that really you want to say to them you know well done you know liam sinclair at reptiles and research another great channel and these guys are pushing it forward these are the young whippersnappers that are now catching me and francis and i mean they're passing me because i can't i'm not at the top of the ladder i one of the other analogies i use is you know and sometimes the ahh is guilty of this we climb the ladder of advancement but then turn around and lift the ladder up yes no yeah, no, yeah. no no nobody starts where they are now if they want to look me straight in the eye and say, I've always kept this way for 25 years, I've used multiple heating systems and thermostatic systems and off. you know, you're, lying. Yeah, you're, you're telling lying. me, you're telling me a lie. So yeah. you started somewhere that was basic and you've ramped up. What we can't do on that journey of aspiration is climb a ladder, turn around and yank it up so that the others can't follow. What you then can't do is deride them, berate them and chastise them because they're not as advanced as you are. So I've almost willfully stayed halfway down the ladder to reach down and pick the first guys up and say, come on. Yeah. And then I'll hand over to Francis. Do you know what I mean? Yes, so it's exactly. like a tag team effort, like passing up to one another. And the idea being is that you're leveling up. So, you know, I'll, I'll take them for the first three or four years. We'll get them the basics. We'll teach them all, all, all the, just their fundamentals. And then the advancement stages you guys can take that, that, has to be the way it works as soon as you remove the aspirational element you kill the hobby dead yes 
it, the that that is what the hobby is is to mm-hmm. constantly aspire to do the next thing to do the next more advanced thing the most i always say the most fun you have in the hobby is when you are challenging yourself at a skill set that you haven't developed yet so maybe yeah. you're learning how to do new lighting you're learning how to pr- pr- place the probe th- properly yeah. and again it kind of goes back to the belt system like if you're trying yeah. things that are way too advanced you're going to start hating it it's like trying a you know why do video game levels progressively get harder it's because you get better at the game you can't start with level 10 because you're going to give up instantly and, and hate it Absolutely. and it can't be level one forever because you'll get bored Absolutely. there's no problems to solve so there has to be that element of aspiration and problem solving or else it, like you say it just will disappear I agree completely. So, you know, one of the things you had mentioned back that we do have to, you know, be honest about is we do keep animals in boxes. That's what we're doing. And I think that's exactly right. So do you have an answer for if someone says, why should you be allowed to keep animals? What is your reason for for promoting this at all? So if you were to ask me the first time one was taken from the wild, should it have been taken from the wild? My answer would be no. The horse has bolted. Yeah. There's captive bred animals everywhere that have been pr- produced in captivity, raised in captivity, cultivated in captivity a lot of times to produce these new morphs and different things. They wouldn't succeed in the wild, and I don't have the heart to euthanize them all. So that's why. Yeah. You know, it's, it's, it's as simple as that, you know, and I, and I believe that I can provide a good quality of life for an animal i believe that by watching it grow and develop its colors develop that it's feeding maybe it's reproductive cycle certain things that just prove to me that it's it's okay it's hard to quantify i'm not a scientist i'm not a i'm not a learned man in any form when it comes to this i hold no qualifications in animal care or reptile keeping it's all self-taught um but you know it's, it's one of those where I think that the hobby would not have succeeded and we would have not had the depth, sheer depth of species breeding successes that we have had unless we were doing a half decent job of replicating them. Yeah, I mean, some of them are going to breed for fun. Beardies will breed whether they're half dead or not. And that's part of the problem. Part part of the issue is that that beardies beardies breed themselves to death. That's, That's what girls do. And idiots keep pairs together for life. But then if, you know, you think about common species that come into the hobby that we don't see anywhere enough of as far as reproduction goes, skinks, So Umishi Snydery or Novo Umishi Snydery, whatever it is now, you know, they're a fabulous lizard. They're my favorite lizards. And if, if I was to tell anybody what lizard to buy, it'd be a Berberskink over a leopard gecko, crested gecko. And screw all them. Berbers beat them hands down in my mind. I think they're awesome. But there may have been maybe that i've heard of six uk breedings of them and then i've only ever known of one be reproduced after the first set Mm -hmm. and do two litters and then stopped completely and couldn't get them to do it third time i only ever got eggs i could never get the eggs to hatch and i only ever got one set of eggs Uh, that was when back when i was about 16. (laughs) but like so so, and and back then 16 there was only two recorded breedings in the entirety of europe Yet Berber skinks are imported en masse. And, and this is a shame because yeah. realistically, if we could crack that nut, that is a superb lizard to keep. Absolutely fabulous. Um, 
and and that's a hard nut to, to crack it hasn't happened but there's other species where we're getting these successes the berber skinks they even though they're not popular five or six successful breedings is more than the one or two in the whole of europe so yeah. we're moving somewhere people are beginning to put these little jigsaws together and work out which parts are missing what do i need to do what which part of the thermal gradient am i dropping at winter when is it raising back up in spring is there a wet season do i need to consider a, a slight basking area or is it completely cold uh, do I need to think about how much of their circadian rhythm needs to change for them to be able to breed? Uh, you're modulating humidity. You know, these are all questions. You know, people that keep stuff like green trees, they're difficult to breed. Yeah, I suppose they are. But as soon as you get a decent thunderstorm, open all your windows, chuck your snakes together and they're shagging because <laughs> it's because it's that humidity trigger and that, that uh, barometric pressure that gets them going. But, you know, some of the other stuff, maybe some of the more temperate things, they're more difficult and nuanced to get cracking. And that, that can be a problem, you know? Yeah. Yeah. It becomes the ultimate problem solve, <coughs> uh, you know, problem to solve. And I think that the hobby does that brilliantly for a lot of species. So you can imagine yeah. that maybe in four or five years, that will be more of a common species available. Absolutely. I hope so. Where do you sit on the, on morphs? Because I think you have, you know, being a shop owner, it's an interesting topic. You'll probably have a different perspective than many people because you, you might see people get drawn into reptiles because of them. I, I don't know. Where, where do you sit on them in general? In general? I yeah. don't like them. <laughs> you don't like them? No. I started, okay. the, I started the YouTube channel on the strength of how much I disliked the way that royals and corns had taken over. So when I grew up in, and doing, doing the reptiles in the 1990s, I could walk into a reptile shop and see gray, Texas, black, yellow, Everglades, Florida, Cali, uh, speckled, desert, gray banded, uh, San Luis Potosi, Nuevo Leon, Durango, you know, like the list goes on. And they were commonplace snakes. They were Mexican blacks with 25 quid. So what, yeah. $35, do you know what I mean? Nothing. Yeah. They, they, they were, they, everybody bred them. They were a piece of piss to breed. And they would, it, and, and I had all that stuff. And then I s stopped and thought to myself one day, because we couldn't get anything. And, and we just had a load of corns and royals come in. Well, this is crap. I can't get excited about this from a personal perspective. If it was a kid I'm selling it to, then I'm, of course, I'm going to be stoked, as you would imagine. That's yeah. my job. <laughs> but from a personal perspective, no, I'm from, it's not lighting my fire. So I started the YouTube channel on the basis that I wanted to promote a greater level of diversity and try and encourage some sort of colubrid renaissance where we can start getting it. And in actual fact, it's happened, but not because of me, because in the UK, everyone's realized if they want to sell to Europe or trade with the Europe, they need stuff that's off the CITES registered. So now, now they all want colubrids and yeah. now like Mexican blacks are 300 quid each or something stupid. Do you know what I mean? So yeah. well, for five minutes till everybody works out how to breed them and then they will be 25 quid again. Do you know, that's the way this hobby works. It's mad. Yeah. Well, you know, it's funny the, the podcast that I released last week, that was one of the things that I had said is I just don't, buy that everybody is that into ball pythons you know every you know i just don't it, it's a cool species it's interesting i mean i don't keep them i probably wouldn't keep a ball python just because i'm not super interested in them but i just don't believe that every single person is that obsessed with a single species and, and that's where we talk about that overproduction issue yeah i think the bubbles popped the yeah. bubbles popped and the problem is whether it was ball pythons whether it was boa constrictors whether it's hog noses whether it's corn snakes 
a lot of the breeders are transient. They they espouse that they are absolutely. I love my retics. I'd never breed anything else. You won't breed anything else until something more lucrative comes along, and then you're going to breed that, and then all your retics will get binned, and then you'll buy something else. And this is you you've watched it. You know the the guys in the nineties who I saw growing up were breeding rare tricolor snakes like milks and the the mountain kings, and they were cool, and they had a really wide range. Then it went to boas, and then it went to retics. And you think to yourself, you're a douchebag. Do you know what I mean? Like, you know, yeah, yeah, yeah. like you, you're not, you're not loyal. This isn't about love. This isn't about your, your passion. This is about money. Yeah. Yeah. Like, you know, and, and, and the fact that you would sit and try and say that it's about love is, is difficult. I openly admit I'm business. I'm selling reptiles. I try and sell reptiles in an, as an, in an, and oh God, get my teeth in, in an ethical way as possible. Yeah. Um, but those ethics will still jar with the general public and cause problems. And I understand that. And I own it. And it is what it is. I'm a big boy. If you don't like it, tell me and I'll shrug my shoulders and carry on with my day. You know, I'd like it's exactly. not going to hurt me. But the, the, the people that would that would say, I know, but I, this is my passion. I absolutely love it. And then five years later, that passion has changed to a different completely different species, completely different size. Funnily enough, also worth lots of money and just just yeah so, just so happens that the previous species that you were breeding the bubbles popped on that and we don't want to breed them anymore and the bubble popped on the species before that and these guys hop around and they're, they're, they're all they are is hummingbirds they just fly into the biggest flower that's what they do yeah and, and, and it's concerning when you realize you know something like a ball python or even a boa you know these are animals that are going to live 25 30 40 years and yeah. every litter like I always, I always try to do the math for people when you have you know eight baby ball pythons that is 320 years worth of ball python that's what you've just created so it's you know what how much responsibility do you want to have with that and i imagine if you're producing several clutches how many years of animals did you just create Mm. And it's a good exercise for people to go through. It's, and, and boas are even worse. You might get like a 25, 30 like litter. Uh, you know, baby. And, and retics are even worse. Yeah. So it's there's some unethicalness about that. Oh, absolutely. When you're talking about a yield of 60 or 80 eggs, how do you ethically yeah. argue your way out of that bike? Yeah. You, know, you can't do it. You, there is no ethical argument for producing just a single litter of 80. Say you then send out these animals to 40 breeders they each have a pair and in four years time they all produce from them. Yeah. now they're a smaller adult they might not produce as much because they've not had the time to mature but they could still easily produce 40 eggs a piece so you've got 20 girls each producing 40 eggs and in four years time what happens then this is the issue then you've got the genetic collateral damage where you get stuff that's being produced that is the low end shit that the breeder doesn't want because it isn't a cow pied that's worth God knows how much. So these are your throwaway ones. These are the ones that end up in the hands of people that couldn't give a shit. They just want a big snake because it's cool, you know, and, yeah. and, and, and that's, they're, they're our problem people. I suppose at least the breeders that are spending the big money at least see some form of investment or there is an investment and that protects them in some way. But the, yeah. the collateral damage or lower end animals, that's where my concern lies. You know, so what about with with young kids? Do, do are are kids attracted to to the morph leopard gecko morph ball python morphs, or or do you find a lot of kids are just coming into the shop because they're obsessed with reptiles? So so how did how does the kid? They're just they're just obsessed it? with reptiles. The problem oh, okay. the problem is is that usually they've been influenced by YouTube. 
Right. So, so they've watched an over giddy American presenter who's had far too many packets of Skittles pre-production go on and be overexcited about this super duper, you know, whatever it is. And, <laughs> and, and, and that's, that's your problem that they're coming in sort of parrot fashion. Oh, I, I watched, I watched this episode of so-and-so and he had this and it was awesome. So, right. Okay. But a normal leopard gecko is a beautiful gecko die. And it's yeah. the price of the one that you've just asked for. Oh, no, blah, blah, blah. So on occasion that happens, but in, for the most part with the kids, we're trying to sell them the low end stuff anyway, because we, we, we don't want to break the bank. Why take the Mickey? Like, yeah. you, I don't, I don't need to take the piss with them. They're, they're buying animals anyway. They're here. They're a captive audience. It isn't necessarily about me trying to sell them the most expensive leopard gecko. It's about me selling them a healthy leopard gecko. That means that they'll be back in every week for two tubs of life. It's, yeah. That will be in every every six weeks for fresh bags of substrate and bottles of disinfectant. That's your long term goal. That's not not the animal. It, like you know, you, it's retaining their business by the, realizing actually that he's not trying to screw me. He's not trying to have me around the corner. He's trying to be fair. We do do the high end ones. I'm looking at a gecko now that's nine hundred pound. Black Knight Super Snow. It's a leopard. <laughs> yeah. Mad. It's that is crazy. I mean, it doesn't doesn't make sense to me. It's it's worth what someone's willing to pay for it. And I mean, I know these black knights are big money, but you know, for me, it's just a leopard gecko. So. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, it's definitely an interesting uh, topic for sure. So I think we'll we'll wrap up with uh, your YouTube channel because that's what I wanted to kind of finish up on. And okay. you, you kind of already mentioned why you you started it, kind of you know along with the Morse. Maybe you could just let everybody know what is on the channel because you have some excellent videos on there kind of a wide range of things yeah so i mean there's a few series uh the main ones are the there is the introducing series which is for beginners so that would be anything that we would deem to fall into the parameters of being able to be kept by uh novice keepers with absolutely no knowledge and there's a far wider range of species available to be kept by the beginner than the beginner realizes and that that's the chief principle of the youtube channel to make them realize it doesn't start and stop with corn and ball pythons it, it we can go to their cousins the great plains rat snake we could we could look at if you still believe in them rosy rat snakes you could look at fox snakes you could look at bird's rat snake you could look at trans pecos rat snakes you could look at uh any of the american rats whether that be i know it's uh, western central and eastern which is a load of shit done I hate it. They're black, yellow, Texas, gray, and Everglades. And they always will be because that's what the hobby's bred for 40 years. But they are they are all beginner species. Any of the North American Getula kings, any of the Pyromelana kings, any of the Mexicana kings, Alterna, the gray bandits, uh, you've got your Western hognose, you've got such as in the in Europe, you've got the leopard snakes, viperine water snakes, grass snakes, a whole abundance of species that are hardy because by essence they're usually temperate which means that they're a tougher species and they'll put up with a, a bigger kick in and which means that then we can take slightly more liberties and they'll forgive us for our foibles and errors without foot you know dropping off the perch and dying like yeah. an or a green tree one. so it was the, the main job was making them realize then i realized right okay so that deals with the beginners but a lot of people do aspire so i need to start thinking about intermediate and advanced species as well and graded them appropriately um 
uh, so what sort of factors are you using? You kind of touched on a few, but what factors do you use to categorize a species? Like what puts it into a beginner, intermediate, or advanced category? So advanced would generally, it would be a giant. Okay. So, so it's precluded from, because of size. And um, whilst the husbandry isn't per se necessarily advanced, the infrastructure required to be able to keep it properly is. Right. So, um, or the financial constraints of keeping one is. Um, intermediate would be usually temper temperament or size-based. So um, arbitrary size limit for in introducing is about 2.4 meters. So eight feet. Everything has to be under eight feet. As soon as it's over eight feet, it goes in, it just immediately falls into intermediate. They are arbitrary. It's, it's just my system of being able to organize the, the way that this works. You know, boa constrictor on, on paper is a beginner snake because it is a fabulous animal. Yeah. One of the singular most tame snakes going. But if I get Mandy for her 11th birthday, one in a boa constrictor, she will be told no because this could be a three meter snake yeah. and it's too much it's too big it's too strong it's not appropriate you know and and that, and that's from a safe and i know i having been bit by hundreds of boas i know that mandy would really appreciate me not selling her a boa that potentially could get her and cause her problems i mean yeah. more than likely she would never would get bit they're wonderful but the risk is still there and i've got to be conscious of that and being somebody who sells to the public i've got to protect the public from themselves quite a lot of the time because what they think they want and what they actually want are two very different things and <laughs> yeah, i have exactly. to say to them no you really don't want that you don't want that you know that's a bad idea uh we did it what else did we do on there we did we did chaz's no uh, no bs reptile advice which was a bit fruity and no filter no filter was applied and that was i think it, it got changed to snakes and adders reptile advice but that was people writing in with questions and i would take the time to do maybe a 10 15 20 minute answer talking about any number of things whether that was brumation cohabitation wh whatever it might be an obstacle that faced them in their personal path or they were wanting to make a decision about what animal should i consider out of these three that i've narrowed it down to and i would go through the pluses and minuses and then i did a stress series which probably is what i was most proud of um because that's something that people just don't factor into their care working on stresses and understanding what stresses are whether that be stresses within the vivarium external to the vivarium the fact that me and you as keepers are a stressor and people fail to realize that they have an action of stress upon the animals that they keep so you know our interactions with the animals affect them as much as the temperatures humidity size of the vivarium uh, being able to hide being in high traffic areas with kids running past or playing football in the dining room or whatever it might be it, you've, you've got to look at these things and it, am i considering all the possible stressors that could be affecting my captive we're in the northern uh, uh, hemisphere is it in a south facing room where for five hours of the day the sun tracks over and makes the tank excessively hot the stack can't do anything about it it's turned off but it's the greenhouse effect your tank is overheating that's an environmental stressor external to the vivarium but have we considered it you know and and the, these are the things that people need to think about it's a different way of thinking yeah you're, you're problem solving and you're thinking about well have i considered these parameters have i considered this does this have a 
a discernible effect on the quality of life of my animal? And can I change it to make it less of an issue? Is, is that just a, a single video or, you, or was that a series of I think there's videos five, 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 five videos. videos. Yeah, it's, okay. it's, like, it's just called the stress series. So yeah. and it's just me chatting about stress, but it, go, it goes through all sorts of stuff. So well, and it seems like one. you really plan out your videos. I mean, the, the ones, you did that great one on ball pythons that I think a lot of people shared around last year where you're just kind of going through their whole, the climate and their, their, their um, what's the word? Not estimation, yeah, yeah, just the ecology in general, yeah, and you know migration. That's what I was thinking. That's oh, what yeah. I was thinking. You know how they how they move around. So that was a, a great one. But you have all these charts printed out, and you know you spend a lot of time putting these videos. I started together. spending more and more time. The problem is I've created a beast that I can't control, and that's that's your issue now. <laughs> now so, people are going to expect that. Yeah. So previous <laughs> the previous iterations of my videos. If you watch the very first introducing series, they're god awful. I'm sat in the dining room. I'm just talking to the camera. I mean, they, were, they weren't scripted. I just riffed about whatever species I was supposed to talk about. And then over time, I played around with the model and the way that it worked. So I introduced, I was always interested in taxonomy and the, the herpetologists that named them. And if they were like, when people have given honorary names and whatever else, this stuff interested me, the history, you know, whether it was Pope or Dumeril and Bibron or whether it was whoever else who named X, Y, and Z at what date or Linnaeus or whoever. So I started introducing that and then people started putting flipping comments about skip to seven minutes, 22, because that's when the care advice starts. <laughs> and I thought, all right, fair enough. Right. You know, the, the, rather than pout about it, I just took it on board and thought, yeah, fair do. So all right, maybe I'm geeking a bit too much. Maybe I need to step off the geek pedal and just go back to info or whatever. So the model that we've got now, which is, like you said, with the Royals, uh, Corns, the Red Milk, Red Blood Python, the most recent ones, I go to a website called timeanddate.com. Hmm. And if you go to timeanddate.com, you can select the climate data for thousands of different regions. What I hasten to say, and plenty of people pull me about this, and this is macro climate data. Yeah. Not microclimate data. So you can't take the data taken from time and date and infer that this is the way that we should keep the animals. What it shows us, though, is climatologically, how does it modulate throughout the year? Daytime high, nighttime low, rainfall. These are key factors for tracking the way that we keep our animals. So I present those three data points across a year as well as if I can find it or I generate and make it a distribution map, such as with the Royals, people don't quite appreciate just how big a range Royal Pythons have got. Um, far, far wider than the US, far wider. I think it's yeah. about another, another 1,200 miles out to sea once the US ends. That's how far the Royal Pythons are spread across America, uh, Africa. It's unbelievable. Uh, I think from uh, Senegal right through to the Democratic Republic of Congo. So I mean, even Uganda, I think part of their range might be, I can't remember. I might be mixing that up with Toxicodryas. They've got a similar range, the uh, Blanding's tree snakes. Mm. But, but um, yeah, it, I, I found it really interesting. And, and the fact that it would take eight hours to fly across their, their natural range. And you think, it's amazing. Oh, shit, that's a successful species. For, yeah. a dump, for a dumpy python that lives inside a termite mound all its life, he's done pretty well, guys. Yeah, he's managed exactly. to spread 8,000 miles across the African continent underground in a termite mound. What a clever <laughs> snake. 
Yeah, exactly. Toe blows. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Oh, and that's what that video is so perfect for. It sort of dismantles yeah. that. Like, hey, there yeah. could be a time in the year when a burrow type situation makes sense, but it's yeah. not 12 months of the year. Absolutely. Absolutely. You only have to look at the climate data. It doesn't marry up with what they're saying. Mm-hmm. So, you know, you've got um, a period from, I think it runs from about from December to maybe April, May, that Senegal has on average zero rainfall so it is completely barren yet this is in the tropical rainforest belt of west africa yet it goes through a complete starvation of rainwater for five months the ground's completely parched cracked and rock solid there's nothing to be and nothing to be found what's the point in being active you run the risk of immediately dehydrating and dying the minute you put your head above ground plus every predator worth its salt will be on you like you don't know what because you haven't got any grass cover or tree cover on the grasslands and plains surrounding the rainforest which is where the royals mainly come from and the borderlands of the forest so at which point they've hidden and estivated to conserve energy that to come above ground wastes more energy than they can take back on board so they've done a cost benefit analysis and the cost benefit analysis has said, I'm going to stay on the ground and I'm just going to wait yeah. this shit out because it's harsh out there. Then the rains come, the grasses grow, the flies arrive, the mammals start breeding, the prey items are there. Then the pythons come out, they feed, they reproduce, they gestate, they lay eggs, and we start the cycle over again. This is the way that the year works. And um, it's, it, it's an argument of convenience for people who have no argument. There is exactly. no argument. There is no argument. You know, you, you're just because you do it and all your mates do it and he's really successful and produced a load of stuff and made X amount of thousands of dollars last year doesn't make you fucking right. It just exactly. makes you a dick. Do you know, like it just, <laughs> it just means you've made money. That, yeah. There's no commentary about the quality of care you're offering. <clears throat> I hasten to add, as a shop, we use racks. Mm-hmm. but our stock is transient the whole point being is that if we've got a bunch of babies they're in racking systems so that we can separately care for them stop the transmission of disease but then they're going to go into a onward home and it's invariably a vivarium we, exactly. we do everything in our power now when we sell the royal pythons they go in a three-foot vivarium ceramic bulb day-night thermostat and they're given the option of the uh, shade dweller uv I'd say probably we're at about 20 to 25% acceptance on snake UV at this moment with new sales, old sales, it was zero. So we're progressing probably not as fast as the advancing lobby would like us to, but again, we're a shop and our model is different. So we're not going to be able to do it at the speed that you dudes do it. And if we said straight out the back, every snake's got UV come hell or high water, the risk is we, chop our profits in half we've got to do this slowly and do it right so that the shop can be sustained and we can introduce the changes that we want long term to introduce and until i've got uv in every one of my snake vivs i'm hard pressed to insist on anything yeah and yeah and like you said it's not a small change so you got no. just you know just like someone who has a big collection if they if they decide they want to go uv you're probably not going to do that over a weekend you're probably going to take the whole yeah. year to buy a couple of bulbs at a time and the other um, 
videos that I really like that I'll point people towards is you did an, a great one on snake anatomy. So you kind of go oh. through different scalation and whatnot. And then then you break down a bunch of the Latin terms, which is super helpful for people. I am horrible with Latin terms or Latin names. And I, even reading them, I have no clue what I'm reading. It just, you mm. know, in my head, it's way off. So I always come to your videos, whether it's just to hear you say the Latin name and then I oh, go dear. off and do whatever I'm doing because you pronounce them at least, I don't know, I assume they're right or they're close to being right. Just, <laughs> You're shaking just, your head. Just say it with confidence, dude. <laughs> whatever comes up, boom, that's it. I'm owning it. <laughs> Even if it's wrong, I'm owning it anyway. They've not spoke it for 2,000 years. They get away with it. It's now... <laughs> Okay, that is good advice then. Just, yeah. you know, the, the language is dead. Just make it up as you go. Make it up and just go for it. Just hit the yeah. pedal. <laughs> but the, the video where you go, you break down the Latin names, super helpful for people because it just shows you how the, the suffixes and prefixes actually mean something. It can actually help you determine what you're looking at, which is really Absolutely. helpful. Absolutely. I mean, the, people don't realize that just simple names, Luco Melas, black and white. So that... The reason for that is so Dendrobates leucomelus, the, the bumblebee dart frog, was preserved and it was a preserved specimen that was named. And because the preservation process had bleached it, it had turned it white. So it should have been, I don't know, a, a Flavi Milano or uh, what are the other ones? Flavi uh, Nigritus or something like that. And that would have been made more sense for black and yellow for the bumblebee. But because it was bleached specimen, it was white and black, so it was called Leucomelus. Oh, that's so, so cool. That, that's just, just a stupid history example. But you've got like Dendrophila, so to Phila is to love, Dendros is a tree, or Dendron is a tree. So Boiga Dendrophila, Boiga tree lover. You know, it's they're, they're telling you what they want and how they want it. You know, Milano Cephalus, black head. So if you, the Cephalum is, is the brain or the head, and then Milano, uh, is is black, same as uh, Nigritus or Nigra. So there's a bunch of different ones, but things that you wouldn't think as well. So Tamnos means bush, but Tamnophis is a garter snake. And you consider a garter snake a water snake, but it's actually a bush snake. Tamnos is bush, Ufis is snake, Tamnophis is a bush snake. Yeah, interesting. Yeah, it's, it's amazing. It is, yeah. That's what literally what the Latin name is telling me. People call them the gopher snakes. They're not gopher snakes. Pituo or, or pitchu is pine. Ophis is snake. Pituophis is the pine snake family, not the gopher snake family. So, like, you know, this is where I get my little uppity self all excited because it's like the Latin name's telling you what it is. It's not a gopher snake because it would be Catenifer. Yeah. Well, that's amazing. And I know, yeah, the video that you do breaks down all that for people that are yeah. listening and want to hear more about that. So, Anyway, Chaz, thank you so much for for jumping on an episode. I really, really appreciate this. I think it's great to hear the perspective of a shopkeeper. And I think everybody really loves what you're up to, both on YouTube as well as how you run your shop. And the morals and principles that guide you are are something that I think align with many of the listeners. So can you let everybody know where they can find more info on you online? Yes. So you you can visit our website, which is www.snakesandadders.co.uk. You can find us on Facebook at Snakes and Adders. Um, we're also on Instagram at chaz.snakesnadders and Pixie has just set up a TikTok <laughs> for maybe younger people and, and, and fans. I don't understand it all. I'm just letting her rock and roll with it, man. <laughs> like, is, is that Snakes and Adders as well? Man. Pardon? Is it Snakes and Adders as well on TikTok? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Snakes and Adders Sheffield, I think it is on, on okay. TikTok. So. 
I'll find it. I'll put it in the show notes for, for the younger oh, audience cool. that wants to watch the watch that. So anyway, Chaz, thank you so much. This was an absolute pleasure. Thank you very much indeed for having me. All right, that is the end of that episode. Chaz, thank you so much for stopping by. I had a blast chatting with you. I especially enjoyed listening to you talk about how you interact with your younger customers. I think that is really the way that a store has to be run. And I hope that there are other store listeners or store owners out there listening to this or store employees that you take some of what Chaz said and try to implement that in your own store. We want the next generation of kids to have that foundation, be excited about the animal, understand how to care for it, Make them understand that it is their responsibility to make sure the animal is well cared for and make sure the animal's care is advancing. And just imagine if the next generation coming up under us is that type of keeper. That would be amazing. Listeners, thank you so much for tuning in. I hope you enjoyed it. If you enjoyed the episode, make sure you share it on Facebook or Instagram. Let's get this episode out on as many ears as possible. If you are interested in supporting the show a little bit more, you can join us at Patreon over at patreon.com slash animals at home. Or feel free to check out the show's sponsor, CustomReptileHabitats.com. There's an affiliate link in both the YouTube description as well as the show notes. If you are looking for something new as far as reptile equipment goes, definitely go check them out. A small commission will come back to me at no extra cost to you if you do make a purchase, which of course helps me produce the show. All right, well, I hope everybody has a good week. I will talk to you next Sunday.